From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. For decades, Sister Helen Prejean has been a prominent advocate against the death penalty. She began working with prisoners on death row in the 1980s and chronicled her experience in the 1993 book Dead Man Walking. It became an Oscar-winning movie, a play, and an opera. You wouldn't be human if you weren't scared. Human? Who said I was human? I think you're very human. I wouldn't be here if I didn't. It is now one of the most performed American operas and tells the story of Sister Helen's relationship with death row inmate Joseph de Roche. I spoke with Sister Helen before the Atlanta Opera's production earlier this year. Given that opera is not traditionally known for reaching the masses, I asked what she thought when first approached about turning her story into an opera. You know what the very first thought uh, I had, because it had been a very successful film to reach the masses, the very first thing I thought was, wow, it'll be the most powerful expression you can get in art because it's live drama with singing. And music brings us into places of our heart we don't even know we have. And Terrence McNally was the librettist, Jake Hagee was a composer, and they did a magnificent job. It's a powerful journey, not just for Sister Helen, me, who really was on a journey. Tim Robbins loves to say all the time, the nun was in over her head, because I'd never done anything like this before. But the audience is going to be on quite a journey, too. Well, how about you when you first saw it on the stage? What did you think? You know what I thought, Virginia? Just like when I saw the movie, it's going to bring it out to the people. See, George has been killing people right and left in the name of the people. And you've had some terrible executions, all of all of these killings. But it's removed from people's eyes. It's a secret ritual. Very few witnesses see it. And people hear, oh, well, look, they did a terrible crime. They must be guilty. They deserve to die. Opera is going to open the curtains and bring people as close as you can get without being there of what it really means. And into the anguish of the victim's families. Because what can you do for a victim's family who's lost, like their son or their daughter? I've known these families. They, you wake up in the morning, it's an ordinary day. Your kid's going to school. That night, your kid goes to a football game. And you know your kid always would come home at 1130 or would call you, and your kid doesn't come home. And they find your kid lying in a sugarcane field, shot in the back of the head and your whole life changes. Mm. What can we as a society possibly do to try to help victims' families from that kind of trauma and loss? So what the formula has been, the answer has been, well, if you lose a loved one like that, we are going to honor your dead child, and we're going to help you heal by killing the one who killed your loved one. And that's what the death penalty is. So the audience is going to be brought four square into the middle of this in the opera. Because it opens with the murder. So there's no moral energy inside people. Did he do it or not? We see him doing it. We see the murder's terrible, innocent, an innocent couple. And we don't like him. He's not remorseful. He blames everybody else. I'm like, bring it on. Mm. Let's see justice. Is that an important part for you to reach in your communications with the prisoners that you've worked with on death row, that they tell you what happened? Well, you know, yeah, of course, because all you're trying to do, I don't have the answer to their eternal salvation or the answer to their life, most of whom 
were abused as children came up in violent situations. I accompany them as friend, which means I also help them be honest. And so like in, in all the individuals, I've been with six people who were executed, and all of them were different. And the second person I was with, Robert Lee Willie, I only got to be with him for two months. He was tough. He had a swastika tattooed mm-hmm. on his arm, and he said, the electric chair don't bother me. And he actually did walk to the electric chair with this little bounce in his steps. Because when you're an outlaw in your mentality, then you're going to out outlaw them. You're going to out-tough them. They're going to kill you. Well, you're going to show them that you're going to do it with flair and with pizzazz. Go ahead, kill me. Because that's their identity. Because some people think, uh, or maybe most of us, well, if they're going to die, then that's going to make them come to grips honestly with conscience and what they've done. Human beings are very, very complicated. And and like with Robert Willie, it was really hard for him to come to grips with the pain that he had caused a family. Because in his mind, he said, you know, that his partner in, in the crime— His which, brother, wasn't it? Well, it's complicated. The, you know, that's, Joe DeRocher is a, uh, is a composite character, so it's not exactly as it was in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been different stories in the book. But anyway, in Robert Willie's case, he was not the one who actually stabbed the victim and killed her, but he held her hands. And in his mind, he actually went to a place where he felt that he was innocent. Of course, under the law, anybody participating in the crime where somebody's murdered is guilty, first-degree murder. You have all kind of complications that get in there. The heart of it, though, was for him to be able to say, to come to the pain that he had caused the families. He was angry at the families because they had had a press conference, the victim's family, saying they couldn't wait to see him die. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, well, i got a thing or two to say to them family. And parents went... I'm going, Robert, Robert. So it's really a struggle. He was also racist to the core. You know, he just, there were so many things. So so how do you find empathy for these people? I mean, I read about the crimes that they committed. Of course, as you said, the characters in the book and in the opera are composites. But, you know, killing young couples, shooting them in the head. They were, you know, begging to die because they were being treated so horribly. How do you, you know, you're talking about having human compassion for them. They, they're doing inhuman things. Absolutely. And, and there's outrage over that. Horrifying acts. You're outraged. I was outraged. You know, sometimes I'd look down at the hands of Patrick Sonier and the hands of his brother that held that rifle that ended those kids' life. So you have two things in your soul going on at the same time, that outrage at the crime. And then you see that goodness coming through him as well. Gratitude, thank you for coming to see me. You see there's more to people than that worst, terrible act of their life. Human beings are very complex. And uh, so it's a mixture. I mean, you know, some of the stories that are being done now of men that have abused women, and then when their story is told, what happened to them, and then we enter into complexity. And the great thing about an opera It's going to bring you into the complexity on both sides. There's one of the scenes when Jay Kagey wrote this. He called me on the telephone. He tried to plink it out on the piano and sing it at the same Mm -hmm. time over the telephone because he knew he had the heart of the opera. And it's an ensemble where the victim's parents are standing on the stage. Sister Helen's in the middle. But the mother of Joseph de Roche 
is standing there. And the victim's families are singing, you don't know what it's like to see your child go out the door and you never see him alive again. The last thing you say to him is, did you clean your room? Mm. And if you know that this is going to be the last words, but here's the mother of Joseph DeRoche singing, you don't know what it's like to see your child slip through your hands. Will he ever know how much I love him? And I'm in the middle going from one to the other. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And one of the victim's families, Mr. Hart, says at one point, Sister, you got a lot to be sorry about because you are way, way out of line here. And basically, you don't know what you're doing either. And there was truth in that because I plunged into it. And at first, when I'm visiting the man on death row uh, and learning about human rights and that the government shouldn't purposefully, in a premeditated way, be killing people, I didn't know what to do about the victims' families because they were so angry. I thought it won't do any good to try to go visit them because the prosecution had told them, Anybody who's against this execution is against you and is against your child. And I stayed away from them. And it was terrible, uh, Virginia, because uh, when I met them, it couldn't have been a worse time. I met them at a pardon board hearing. And when you walk into a pardon board hearing in Louisiana, it's public. Mm -hmm. You actually sign a book which side you're on life or death. Mm. And the first time I'm meeting them, it's because I'm there to plead for the life of Patrick Sonier. And they said, well, here's when the nun comes up, this bleeding heart for the murderer, but she hadn't done anything for us. So some of their anger was legitimate. And then there's that encounter with them, and that's real. That's right in the opera. It's right there. It's in the movie, too. Where I encountered them, we were walking on the street. We were outside the building. And one family was just so angry at me, they didn't even speak. They just walked past me in stony silence. But one of the families, Lloyd LeBlanc and his wife, Eula, their son had been killed. And Lloyd LeBlanc is really the hero of Dead Man Walking. And and Mr. Hart in the movie Owen Hart approximates him because he's on a journey. He can't wait for the death of this man who killed his daughter. And and you just see him trying to make his way out from under the rage. He said, when I look in the mirror, I see a sad man. Everybody's sad. Everybody's. And then right before he goes in the execution, you just see him grasping for healing when he says, I know my pain is about my child's death, not his death. Mm. And as one of the victim's families told me, I could watch him be executed a thousand times and I'd come home but the chair would still be empty where my child sat. So it's a tremendous mystery that we have in this. And, you know, it's not just for the audience, for all of us, that, God forbid, somebody would be murdered, but we all know what it is to suffer hurt or somebody we'd love to be hurt and then that instinct in us to get even, to be mean, to be angry, to impose pain on people who impose pain on us. That's really the heart of what what the opera's about. It's it's deeper than simply the death penalty. Well, you were accused of being way out of line. Were you way out of line, however? I mean, is this what the Catholic Church teaches? They're against the death penalty. How did they respond to you taking this stand quite publicly? Well, it was very interesting because we had an archbishop in New Orleans who had been at, for the, the, in the military, and he was all for the death penalty. So all the efforts we were doing to educate Louisiana citizens 
when we'd have a bill before the legislature to abolish it. He's on the other side. And he's forbidding the other Louisiana bishops to stand up because he was the archbishop. So we had a mixed bag of, I just finished writing a book, my memoir, mm-hmm. of how I got to death row. And I put this prelude in it because <clears throat> when you witness fire, it changes your soul no matter what a hierarchy of your church or anybody says. And the prelude in River of Fire, which is going to come out in August, says, They killed a man with fire one night. They strapped him in a wooden chair and pumped electricity through his body until he was dead. His killing was a legal act because he had killed. No religious leaders protested the killing that night. But I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. And what I saw set my soul on fire, a fire that burns in me still. And now here's an account of how I came to be there that night. So you have the experience that you have that fires your soul and changes you. And then you have doctrine and church teaching, which always takes longer to catch up Mm -hmm. to the experience of the people. And that has happened now in the Catholic Church. Pope Francis— Right, they did officially put it in the catechism. It's in the catechism, but now the whole challenge is the gospel of Jesus, or truth, is always to get it into the experience of the people. You can't just have dry doctrine. Now the Pope changed something in the catechism, so you're a Catholic, so get in line now. This is what you believe. There's a journey involved of conversion of going from a place of where you want vengeance to one of, no, we can't trust government to do that. You're listening to my conversation with Sister Helen Prejean. We spoke back in January just before the Atlanta Opera opened a production based on her book, Dead Man Walking. We'll be back with more of the conversation in just a moment. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB and Sister Helen Prejean. Her organization, The Ministry Against the Death Penalty, is a faith-based organization that advocates for people on death row. An opera based on her book, Dead Man Walking, is now one of the most performed of American operas. I sat down with Sister Helen before the opera premiered in Georgia. We talked about the connections between race and class and the death penalty, which is a highly emotional issue for people on both sides. Sister Helen calls for reforming the criminal justice system. And I asked her how she approaches tackling a bureaucratic infrastructure, along with engaging people's morality and hearts. Let me tell you that the legal structure and how we set up the criminal system in this country is a moral question. You don't have moral questions over here of just heart and conscience and what you believe about Jesus. The way we set up who gets the death penalty and who doesn't, overwhelmingly, we can see it's when people kill white people that they're even a a candidate for the death penalty. Never when people of color are killed. And then it's always poor people that go to death row because you don't have a good lawyer doing pretrial motions, fighting that prosecutor every step of the way, it becomes so easy for prosecutors to go after somebody who's going to have a lawyer who's overworked, underpaid, and it's not going to fight him or her. And then it's a slam-dunk process. They can get away easier with hiding evidence or suddenly eyewitnesses don't appear that are supposed to appear or they have jailhouse snitches coming on. All those things can happen. Because you don't have oversight in the process, it's supposed to be an adversarial process to come to truth. Prosecution presents, defense presents. When you're poor and you haven't been able to get a lawyer 
And if those lawyers at trial do not raise a formal objection, like for a black man with an all-white jury being seated, and there's no formal objection, it doesn't go in the transcript, and it cannot be a matter for appeal. So it means you can never be looked at again in the other courts. And you get on a little track, and it's greased, and you're on your way to execution. We started out thinking maybe when the Supreme Court put the death penalty back in 76, they put as the criteria it's to be reserved for the worst of the worst murderers. Well, you know what we found out over these 30-plus years? We don't really know what that means. And what happened is because the criteria is fuzzy, you have these microcultures. So is it any surprise that over 70% of the actual executions the practitioners of the death penalty have been in the 10 southern states that practice slavery. Does anybody really surprised by that? Because you don't have an airtight criteria, that's not law. That's culture taking over. And so that's why you have 98% of people on death row are all poor. How's that equal justice under law? It can't be. So when we have a Supreme Court with eyes to see, and hearts to feel, and consciences that can, because most people, all people on the Supreme Court are people of privilege. They have lived a life of privilege, and it's much harder for them to get inside the skin and life of people and to see what's the, you know, the unfairness in the practice of the death penalty. So it's going to be state by state. So Georgia, it's going to be Georgia. And I've been in, in and out of Georgia many, many times. In fact, we did a walk from death row in Florida to the Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta, right into Atlanta. And then, this is 1990, we carried the coffins of 90 people who had been executed. And now it's over 1,000. But it's all about waking up the people and educating the people. Well, death row sentences in Georgia are pretty rare. These days, most of the people who are executed, are yeah. they're carried out because of old cases that have been cycling through years of right. appeals. So do you think the public or judicial appetite for capital punishment is changing? Yes, absolutely, it's changing. There's not the zeal anymore for executions. I'll give you, my state, Louisiana, we haven't been in execution since 99. Mm. Only one consensual one. And you know what I think is part of it? I was saying this. I got to meet with a cast last night as we went through the final execution scene. For the opera. Yeah, for the opera last night. And uh, and I just said to them, you know, think of the guards. And, and I tell the story in Dead Man Walking of one of a major cootie who had been a superintendent on death row. And he was doing fine with that. He was fair-minded. He was, And then they moved him to the execution squad. When you're on the execution squad, you're going to practice taking a live human being from his or her cell and walking them and then strapping them down. And you pray that they're going to go quietly and not fight you because you've had, there have been cases where a person about to be executed is looking into the eyes of the guards that are dragging him down the hall saying, don't kill me, don't kill me. And what they're telling the guards Look, it's just part of your job. We're not responsible for this. We're just carrying out. There was a jury. There was a judge. There was a crime. We're just carrying out what the sentence is. You're not killing anybody. You're not murdering anybody. And I tell his story in Dead Man Walking of how after five executions, he called me in his office one day and said, I can't do it anymore. Mm. They're defenseless. 
We are killing a defenseless person, and that's what changes the morality of it right at the heart. Even prisoners of war cannot have their hands tied behind their back and brought out to a wall and shot because it's defenselessness of the person, and to kill a defenseless person is an immoral act, however you try to legalize it. So what are you looking for when you're having those conversations with both those people who are sitting on death row and the victims' families, which you have, you know, rightfully brought to the fore and has come to you through hard-won experience, it sounds like. Do you want forgiveness? Do you, you, you said there's nothing that can bring their children back to that empty chair, so that can't happen. But what will put peace in their hearts? Peace, yeah. For those who have done an unspeakable crime, and boy, I've meditated on this a lot and been with people, what is it like? What most people say who have done a terrible crime, if I could turn the clock back, I mean, because they do unspeakable things. And often it's enraged, emotional. It's not just cold-blooded, I'm going to go kill somebody today. But the victims' families, I've learned the best thing that I can do for them is to put them in touch with other people who've been through the journey and have come out whole. Like Lloyd de Blanc, who's the hero in Dead Man Walking, as I mentioned, his journey was he had such hatred in his heart for the two men who had killed his son, David, 17 years old, the light of his eyes, who was so much like him. And then that journey of he saw he was losing his own heart. He was always in anger, and he's snapping at his wife and daughter. And he said, look, I'm a kind person. I would help anybody. And I was losing that. And I kept praying. I mean, he was the first victim's family really taught me the meaning of forgiveness. If you look at the word to give before, it means not letting the love and integrity that you have as a person be overcome by hate so that you become a hateful person to it, poisons and kills you. He taught me that. And more and more victims' families are getting it that the death penalty is not the answer. In New Jersey, when the legislature 11 years ago were debating the death penalty, they had 62 murder victims' families that testified and said, don't kill for us. The death penalty just re-victimizes us. It puts us in a holding pattern of waiting years and years and years for the so-called justice that may or may not happen because the legal process and appeals is so complex. Mm -hmm. And the, the appeals judges and courts are overwhelmed. I mean, look at California. They have 744 people on death row. And it means every state Supreme Court has to have a hearing and look at each case. And they're overwhelmed. They'll never get to it. Victims' families are figuring that out. And then you really see race in this, too. Black families, like we had a group called Survive in New Orleans for victims' families. All of the families, African-American, they didn't even expect investigators to come out. with Like Virginia Carr, she had two sons killed within six months, and they didn't even investigate the murders. Because if you have a negligible life, there's no outrage over a death. And that's why race cuts through the death penalty, and it always will. My guest is Sister Helen Prejean. Her best-selling book, Dead Man Walking, inspired an opera and an Oscar-winning movie starring Susan Sarandon. Did you begin to look at yourself differently after seeing the movie? You'd always had personal relationships with people, but had you considered yourself to be an activist? You know, when your eyes have seen 
what my eyes have seen. You know, I've accompanied six human beings to be executed. And I believe in the goodness of the American people's hearts. I have crisscrossed this nation more than I can tell you. I can't tell you how many times I've been in and out of Georgia. And when you can get people and bring them into the full story so they can be in touch with both parts of their own hearts, most people, most people are good and would not want government in this preordained fashion taking people out and killing them. But they've been made to be afraid. Oh, if we don't execute them, they'll kill people in prison. They've been so demonized. When you are made to be afraid, like immigrants at the border, when you're made to be afraid of people, then you say, yeah, do whatever you have to do. And it's easier than to promote violence. But when you see it, when you're close to what it means, most people get it. So what is the alternative? I mean, is... Well, the alternative is, first of all, draw a line in the sand, in the sand and never permit government to be the arbiter of who's going to live and who's going to die, and we're going to set up a system by which that happens. The other is we have to start thinking of our penal institutions more in terms of restoring life instead of just pure pain and punishment. Why is our basic myth that when you do something wrong, you must be punished for it, you must experience pain for it? Does it go back to the to the ancient story of the fall of Adam and Eve who were punished and were thrown out of the garden. Is there another way that we can restore life? And more and more in restorative justice are turning to Native American models where when a crime has been done in a community, the circle of the community gathers, talks together about what has been, who's been hurt, what can be done. Now, we will always need to have a legal system but much more about restoring life. So now we have alternate drug courts so young people aren't sent to prison forever because they had a drug crime that wasn't even related to violence. We're making our way slowly, but it's about life, and it's about living, and it's about not putting ourselves up to be the arbiters of life and death. So the audience, I always want to say to people before an opera, before they're going to go through it, Man, they ought to have seatbelts in that chair because you are really going to go on a deep journey here. Had you ever been seen much opera before you saw no. this performed? No, I had seen one opera. I wasn't an opera goer at all. But, boy, I can see the reality. You know, operas used to be about really live stuff that was Opera, happening. Yes. Yeah, in society. Operatic things. And Jake, loved, Jake Hagee, the composer, he loves to talk about it. You know, it's just like, and this is about real stuff, so... Dead Man Walking, I call it pure grace of God that it's gone around the world, but it brings people into a deep journey and the power of music. I so appreciate these opera singers because of what they have to put into their work, the long, long, long hours of developing that voice and being able to boom out across an audience of a thousand people. You know, it's they're very dedicated. But, you know, knowing the profile that you have and the, and the film, obviously, which was a huge exposure for you, if somebody sees the title Dead Man Walking, playing at the Atlanta Opera or any place else, are they going to be just the convinced, those who already know your work, already have an opinion that is anti-death penalty that would go and see that work? I mean, are you going to change any minds? Well, here's the thing, and I learned this from Tim Robbins when we, we worked on the film together with Susan Sarandon and Tim. Every line, every scene, I work with them. 
And the first thing Tim explained to me was the difference between art and propaganda. So he, as an individual, is very against the death penalty. So he said, I could shape a movie that there's only one way to come out of it, that if you don't come out against the death penalty, shame on you. But art brings you over equally to both sides of an issue so that you feel the agony of it, the anguish of it on both sides. And one of the greatest compliments he got after the film A Dead Man Walking was he got letters from people who said, before I went to the, to the movie, I believed in the death penalty. When I came out, I believed in it more. <laughs> he also got letters, which he really treasured, from victims' families. Thank you. You treated us with great respect as people really agonizing over this and not just these extreme characters saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. So that's what art is. And truthfully, the opera brings you through both of those realms in your heart, the polarities, because it opens with the murders. Everybody witnesses the murder of two innocent kids. And then, it, and then that feeling of bring on justice, it seems only a death can be the just punishment for what he just did to those two innocent people. And it's the only opera in which there's a minute and a half of silence during the execution. All you hear is the whir of the machines. And by then, we've traveled with Joseph de Roche and his own journey. And then he reaches a point, and you're with him then, when he's down on his knees, crying and remorseful for what he has done, this incredible thing of taking a life. And when Sister Helen then says to him, now, Joseph, truly you are a son of God, because he was truthful. He acknowledged what he had done. He begged forgiveness from the, from the victim's families. And then it ends with the execution. There's profound silence in the audience, because, okay, here's the justice we asked for, and now here it is. That's the closest people of Georgia are going to get to an actual what it means for the state to execute somebody. They're going to see it with their own eyes. Sister Helen Prejean, what a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so Great much. Great talking to you, Virginia. This time had just flown by. That's Sister Helen Prejean, author of Dead Man Walking and founder of the Ministry Against the Death Penalty. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Of all the topics we've covered on this show, Southern accents got some of the most comments. Many of you told us on social media that you're proud of your roots and don't try to sound otherwise. Others say that they felt stereotyped as a hick, an image reinforced by shows like the Beverly Hillbillies. This here is a Clampett place. I'm Jed Clampett, my young and Ellie Mae, and Granny. Granny says you've been doing some wildcatting. There's no need to. Mr. Clampett, that swamp of yours is full of oil. I could have told you that. Well, my company would like to pump it out. Yeah, I'd like that too, but I just can't afford to have it done. 
We picked up the topic with Marie Cochran, director of the Afrolatcha Artist Project, and Chuck Reese, host of the Bitter Southerner podcast. We're revisiting that conversation when we introduced Marie and Chuck to each other. You'll hear that they hit it off, and Marie will be a guest for the premiere episode of the podcast's second season, available on November 15th. The topic? Southern accents. But back to that conversation. Chuck opened it up by weighing in on the Beverly Hillbillies. Well, for me, it's hard not to think of it as indelible because I grew up with it. I was born in 1961, and it's one of the earliest television shows I remember watching. But, you know, I I didn't really know too many people like Jed and, and Granny, you know. And uh, even though I grew up in a small rural town, if anything, we had a little more in common with uh, the Mayberry of the Andy Griffith show. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, you know, arguably the, the, the pioneering show of, of, you know, what I refer to now as hillbilly TV. Uh-huh. But, you know, that is a trope about the South that has never gone away since the advent of television. I mean, we've, it comes all the way up through things like Duck Dynasty. Right, and Dukes of Hazard, Hee Haw, all that kind of thing. How about for you, Marie? Did you ever see families that looked or acted like yours on in media growing up? Well, first of all, I have to say that you paired us perfectly because I was born in 1962. Perfect. All right. In Georgia. And so um, these are parts of my childhood and you know when i the first paragraph that i put in my essay was that i simultaneously had a crush on john boy of the waltons and michael of good times <laughs> so go. the thing was i had pretty much to um see reflections of myself in those two different shows that didn't adequately um reflect what my experience was but just um piggybacking on what chuck said also, my favorite shows to for entertainment were Soul Train and Hee Haw. Mm-hmm. There at you the go. At the same time. Well, and Marie, you also write in your piece about what happens when you introduce as yourself as a person from Appalachia. So what kind of responses do you get? All right, here we go. <laughs> if they're um, white folks, even some people who don't know me, who meet me, they'll ask me where I'm from. And then they'll ask me, okay, but how long have you lived here? And I said, I was born and raised in Stevens County. Then if they're black friends of mine from wherever, but specifically, let's say, Atlanta, they'll say, oh, you're the only family there. Mm. And that's how it was when I grew up. And unfortunately, that's still the way it is now. Well, Chuck, this is something that you also came up against when you were working in a magazine in New York City. You know, how do people respond when they heard your accent from the South? Not that uh, we're going to get to the race thing in just a second. Well, I, you know, when, when I first moved to New York City to go to work for Adweek magazine in 1984, um, you know, anytime anyone heard me talk, I mean, you can't go to New York with a twang like mine and not be made no. fun of. <laughs> You know, uh, I did find it interesting after a while because, you know, I was up there the first time I lived there for five years and you learn how to adapt. But, I, you know, I adapted while keeping my accent because I just couldn't get rid of it. I mean, you know, the only place I would ever try is when I was ordering a bagel or a sandwich at a deli because it seemed to help if I tried to talk a little faster, you know. Plain bagel, toasted, schmear. I'm I'm not convinced. Yeah, please do. Yeah, because I'm glad that you talked about the whole idea of 
leaving our home, our rural communities to go to urban communities, because even as you were asking me about, you know, how people reacted to finding out that I was from, you know, the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, they didn't believe me because I don't have the twang. Hmm. And so it's not even about just the issue of race. I mean, I didn't try to get rid of it. I listened to a lot of public television, and I blame Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and I wish I had the twang. So, you know, you know, this whole, you know, sort of interweaving between expectations and reality, I think, is really what Chuck and I, you know, are dealing with in the work that we do. Yeah, so, but, but you write, uh, Marie, I'm a black Southerner, and my experience, while it defies the white hillbilly stereotype, is assuredly Appalachian. Do you think Appalachian reads white? Always. Yeah, but you not, do. Not, not always forever because of the word Afrolatcha. When <laughs> Frank X. Walker and the group of Kentucky writers um, have not only, you know, put it in the dictionary and won various awards and created these incredible careers. But when I met Frank X. Walker um, eight years ago in Asheville, North Carolina, I asked him, I said, you know, what's going on? At the time, they were, you know, blowing up. The Carolina Chocolate Drops had, you know, were performing. They hadn't won the Grammy yet. I met them before, um, you know, they became famous. You knew when. Um, I knew him when. But the thing was, you know, I asked him about visual art, and he said, do something with visual art, and that's why I created this network of creatives. But um, the thing is, you know, all of that is changing with this new generation of professionals and, um, you know, activists and, you know, people who really just know what their lived experience is. Because I didn't, you know, even say this, but, you know, I would assume, and this is something I'm going to explore, that my white friends, you know, were watching Soul Train, too. And mm-hmm. Because they sure were listening to Bill Rice, Mr. Rice, the Rice Man, play his soul, you know, radio show on Saturdays on WNEG. So people don't acknowledge the back and forth. They acknowledge that the banjo has African roots, but they don't talk about these lived experiences that we have. Well, as director of the Afrolatcha Artist Project, you connect, support artists of color to keep the history of this region alive. You mentioned the band, the Carolina Chocolate Drop. So here's just a little bit of their song, Cornbread and Butter Beans. Marie, what do you think the history of black Appalachian artists and residents not generally part of the story told about the region? It doesn't fit a commercial um, perspective. And I think Chuck, again, could, you know, echo this. Um, We have edited out the good stuff. And, you know, we really have to talk because it is complicated. Um, It's layered and sometimes it's, you know, contradicts itself. Dixie, as a song, was written by black people. Now, we won't even get into that, um, but I'm just dropping it in so your readers and listeners, excuse me, listeners can um, go back and look it up. Um, but when the Carolina Chocolate Drops performed on stage, they would do these little interludes and give out that information because not everybody goes to college and gets a Ph.D. 
in anthropology or cultural studies. And we need to get the word out. That's absolutely right, you know, because there's if you look back into the history of Appalachia, even though there was the de facto racial segregation, there was also de facto racial integration in places, too. Right. And you hear it most in the music. And and when you dig back into the history of that Appalachian string band music, what you realize is that it was something that was created by Scots-Irish immigrants and by African-American people. Poor people. Poor people. It's poor people's music. And, you know, even though you might be a white kid who grows up in Appalachia listening to bluegrass music and you think that the banjo is a bluegrass instrument, it's the white man's instrument, but it's not. And once you learn that, you start making connections that you did. And that's, you know, I think that's the the thing that that is true no matter uh, what part of the South's troublesome history you look at. You you find when you really dig in, you find more places where we were together across the racial barriers than you were probably aware of mm-hmm. before. And and to go back to your point, Marie, yeah, those were my two entertainment shows, exactly. Hee Haw and Soul Train, <laughs> and that's why to this day I still have a stack of stylistics, Harold Melvin yes. and the Blue Notes, and OJ's forty fives on my shelf. Uh huh. And and I love Dolly Parton, and I love Buck Owens, and you know as much. I mean, and you know we're we're putting a lot of information out there, and I hope you know I'm just loving the conversation. But when I moved to North Carolina, because I had these feelings that something wasn't really being explained well. I mean, I always thought, okay, my Atlanta friends, you know, aren't quite getting me. You know, um, my, you know, other friends might think that, okay, where we're from is backward, and isn't it grand that I'm a UGA grad, and I went to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, and, you know, I've left these humble beginnings, but it's my home. Um but when I went um, and got a job at, in North Carolina, I met Jeff Biggers, and I'm looking at his book right now, The United States of Appalachia, because that's really what I riffed off of when I wrote the essay. And it says how Southern mountaineers brought independence, culture, and enlightenment to America. And when I read this book that told me that Nina Simone, Bill Withers, etc., cetera, uh, were from my region and then later met Frank X. Walker, it all came together for me. It really did. You're listening to my earlier conversation with Marie Cochran, director of the Afrolatcha Artist Project, and Chuck Reese, host of GPB's Bitter Southerner podcast. Season two premieres on November 15th with an entire show dedicated to Southern accents. Leonard Henry says, for dumb Southerners, we certainly lead the rest of the country in the number of excellent writers we produce. We also lead the country in Medal of Honor recipients. My wife is placed, was placed in a remedial class in New York City as a child because she was stereotyped for her Southern accent. But what they didn't appreciate, being rather narrow-minded, was that she was the granddaughter of one of America's most famous poets and a genius. So we're talking about the artistic tradition. You were talking about music just then, but also literary tradition. So I'm just wondering, you know, for you, Chuck, you're an editor of the Bitter Southerner magazine, so you're trying to expand the definition of how people think about the South. But at the same time, 
um, you know, how do you make distinctions? Uh, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, like, I don't know, something prototypically old Southern seeming about whether you whether you propagate that or you give it attention or you're just saying, like, this is part of it all. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure what that question is, but I wonder if you can pick up on it. Uh, I, I think so. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the thing that. Well, the thing that I, I have definitely found over the five and a half years we've been publishing this thing, there's this phenomenon that, that's happening all across the South and has been happening for a good many years now, which is that our region is full of people in cities who live city kinds of lives. These cities are populated by so many of us who grew up with distinctly rural roots. Right. We may not have done the thing that so many Southerners have done and, and left the region for good, but, you know, if we're still here, we come to the city and our minds expand and we start looking at the world in different ways. And, you know, if somebody comes up to me with some old South stuff today, it's, I mean, I kind of just write it all off mm -hmm. because so much of it is based on things that we were taught in the public schools. You know, I mean, there's no doubt that the original sin of the South was slavery, right? Another second wave original sin was we spent 100 years teaching our children that we did not fight a war over slavery. Mm -hmm. There you go. Which was a lie. I mean, we were literally all taught, you know, I hear countless stories. I've heard them ever since we started of people, you know, saying that when they chose slavery on a high school quiz as the cause of the Civil War, they got an, an X on mm -hmm. their answer, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's just the truth. An essay that ta Coates wrote immediately after uh, the, the shootings at uh, Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston few years ago. He quoted from several of the Confederate states' secession declarations, including Georgia's. You don't have to read more than a paragraph into any of those things to find out that the war was really fought over the ability of the states to hold slaves. I read it for the first time when I was 54. And I want to add something to what um, Chuck just said. I just got back from the Appalachian Studies Association conference in Asheville, and they showed the new documentary called Hillbilly. Everybody in that room cried, including me. Why? Why? Because it hit home in so many ways. As we said earlier, these acts that have happened through public education or, you know, uh, elected officials meant to divide poor people. Because ultimately, when these poor people come together, they make music. They make babies. <laughs> they make community. Um, you know, all of these things happen. And, you know, we could go into all kinds of theories about, you know, the whys of that. But um, we need to really come together because we have so much in common. And that's the richness of the South. Marie Cochran there, director of the Afrolatcha Artist Project. She's written a lot about what it's like to be African-American and growing up in Appalachia. Chuck Reese is editor of The Bitter Southerner and host of The Bitter Southerner podcast. Season two premieres November 15th, and the entire issue will be talking about Southern accents. 
Before we go, I want to invite you to some community events where I will be live and in person this week. Tonight, I'm part of the Pop-Up Zine Atlanta show of performed journalism. That's at the Windmill Arts Center in East Point. On Thursday, I'll be on stage with podcast host and best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell at the First Center for the Arts in Atlanta. He's the one who introduced the Tipping Point Rule, and his new book is called Talking to Strangers about the tragic results of miscommunication. On Saturday, I'll be in Shelman, Georgia for the Boudlow Bryant Festival and back on Sunday, October 13th to talk with MSNBC host Rachel Maddow about her new book, Blowout. It is super timely and there's a lot of explaining there about the geopolitical tension in Ukraine, among other things. We'll be at the Fox Theater. That's again in Atlanta on Sunday. A whole lot to digest, but we've made it easy for you. You can get details at gpbnews.org or on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Meanwhile, back on the radio tomorrow at 9 with more of On Second Thought, or you can listen to the podcast anytime. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is GBB.